Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and this is our Wednesday show where we sit down with a guest, think about their work and unpack the rest. Today we are talking with Tony Stubblebine, the CEO of web publishing platform Medium.com. You may have heard of it. I guarantee you've at least been there. And on the show today, the economics of online publishing, how to build a media startup that lasts, and also the value exchange between AI companies and online content. Now, before Tony was the CEO of Medium, he worked for O'Reilly way back in the day in their digital publishing efforts. He also built a number of publications on the Medium.com platform that drove a not insubstantial amount of overall traffic to that service. Tony, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, that was way more flowery and polite than I usually do on my intros, just so you know. That's good. That was perfect. Yeah. I mean, I've been around. I've seen some stuff (laughs) pre-Web 2.0, you know, so... That comes into play uh, occasionally here at Medium. Yeah. Well, being around, having seen some stuff actually is pretty much where I wanted to start. Mm. Because I have known about Medium. I have, I think, written a couple of posts on Medium. I have known it through its various incarnations. I have had friends that have worked there. I have friends that work there now. I'm kind of curious, 14 months into your tenure as CEO, what is Medium today? Yeah, it's a publishing platform that's supported by a subscription for the best of Medium. And so the subscription goes to pay for the authors, to help incentivize them to write their very best stuff. And it goes to curators and editors to help find and surface the best things on the internet. And I think when we think about our purpose, we think we want to be an alternative to the attention economy. You know, like people want to pay for substance stuff that actually changes their lives and makes their lives better. And that's rare these days. So Medium, so you're framing it much more than a place where everyone can write. It's a place where there is an economic engine designed to encourage, incentivize, and I would say reward writing of a particular type. Is that fair? It's so hard to say a particular type. It's Uh, more, I would say, a particular quality or a particular take on quality. So I mean, obviously, we are all living on this internet where it feels very divisive, it feels very loud, the most divisive opinion wins. And I had come from this completely opposite take on publishing where we were, this is the O'Reilly experience, which is now 20 years ago, Yeah. where it's what is the best possible advice that we can give on the topic that we happen to be covering. So O'Reilly was always mostly covering programming topics. Sure. But the way you get that is through a lot of hard work and a lot of subject matter expertise. And there's probably no no word more divisive to our authors than expertise. And I think they forget that by definition, everyone is an expert in their own life. Like everyone has something useful to give to the world, but the rest of the internet kind of incentivizes the opposite. Let me just sound off with my opinion and what's the point of actually researching it or basing it off of you know things I, I know at a deep level. Tony, you don't have to take my Twitter account to task quite that hard this early in our chat. <laughs> oh, that's the I worst. Mean, geez, brutal. No, by, by type, I was more thinking substantive and long form yeah. versus of a particular you know genre or sure. even or even topic area. But you touched on something very interesting there. Just prepping for our chat today, I was going back through your state of medium talk that you gave earlier this year, and you did kind of reprise that idea that everyone is an expert in their own life. And to me, that puts a very 
human-centric framing around mm-hmm. what Medium is. And I, I was curious if that's fair, because earlier in the history of Medium, there were a couple of in-house publications that ranged across topics, and there was a, a pretty wide variety of stuff that was often journalistic, but still varied. But that framing feels more people talking about stuff that they are either very invested in or have lived through. And that feels narrower to a degree, if that makes sense. It's funny that it comes across to you as narrower because I look at the voices that are on the internet and I see journalists, which are great and serve a really important role. I see the creator economy, which is mixed, but the top of it also serves a really important role. But in my opinion, the world of, we call doers as sort of an opposite to creators. The world of doers who write is a hundred times bigger than the entire Mm -hmm. creator economy. They might not write daily for years on end, of course, because they don't have anything to write about till they've gone out and lived. So like, we're positive that that world of authors is much bigger and has something that's kind of lost in the internet right now. Yeah, no, I think the way that I was thinking about this is a little bit off. So I was thinking about experts on their lived experiences as being about living. It sounds more now like you're saying people are experts through their life in certain areas and topics, sure. and that's what they're going to bring to the platform. Right. And this is why it's it, it's so broad, right? Like medium, you could be talking about gardening or you could be talking about equity. Like, I mean, just to give a, like a more concrete example, I was talking to one of our investors the other day, you know, we're 11 years old, we've got like financial cruft. And I was like, this is Mark Suster, who's many people know. And I was like, Mark, you know, is there any way we can clean this up? Do you have any advice? And he starts telling me, he's like kind of going on a rant, has really strong opinions about what we should do. <laughs> and then he stops mid-rant and he goes, Tony, just read my Medium post about it. And so I go and I read it. And I was like, oh, this is exactly what I needed, right? And so how many people need to read this post? 20. You know, it's so specific to being a CEO of a venture funded startup. But for me, it was the most powerful information I could have imagined that day. And it's coming from someone with lived experience, right? Yeah. So this actually brings up the subscription model of Medium because I've been a Medium subscriber. I forgot to double check if I still am. I did have my credit card get hacked a little while ago, so I had to replace it. So I may have accidentally lapsed. But when I think about paying for Medium, I'm going to subscribe. And then for a set dollar amount per month or per year, I have access to a whole lot of stuff. And to me, it's cool that you can have stuff on Medium that is so tailored that it's the exact thing that 20 people need. But even with a subscription model, I can't see a way in which that piece of content is going to generate lots of economic value. And so to me, there's still something about distribution leading to earned value on medium, if you will. And I'm just trying to figure out how you're balancing the tension between having stuff that is applicable to a narrow audience at times. So it goes deep, but also having the economics work out. So that way folks are incentivized to keep producing. This is so nerdy because if, if we can go nerdy on the economics of writing, please is when I first started writing as a partner on medium. So this is before as the CEO, we got into this little bit of a headbutting with certain authors because I was going after subject matter experts and I was asking for 3,000 word essays and I was paying $500. This was a different era where we had commissioning was possible. And they loved it because for them, they're like, it's already in their head. It's a chance to organize it, put it out. 
it's not actually that much work to write 3,000 words if you already know everything. Yep. But then every now and then we'd get an actual journalist who'd come through and say, I want to write on this topic. And we say, yeah, we're looking for three to 5,000 words. And they're like, what? And you're paying 10 (laughs) cents a word? So if if anyone who's been around professional writers, that's sort of like the gold standards. They want to get paid a dollar a word. And they're like, are you trying to cheat me? I'm like, no, you're just not our target author. So the Mark Suster... He wants distribution to an audience of 20, the right 20, who he's going to invest in one of them. That company's going to go public. He's going to make, you know, $10 million for the fund or something, right? $100 million sure. for the fund. So his economics are not about necessarily the size of the distribution or the amount that we pay him. There's other people who feel differently. It's like, I think people with a great story that's broadly applicable, they're having this other challenge that Medium serves, which is you shouldn't have to be a marketer in order to get hurt, you know, like on the current platforms, it's so required that you understand SEO, that you understand virality. And it's like, well, what if you just have a great story? Is there a place that's looking for that? I mean, we're not going to be perfect, but we're looking for that and we're looking to boost that as widely as possible. So the differentiator for Medium is we're trying to distribute people who don't already have an audience. Right. And so then I think I better understand now the product that you want to have out in the market I understand the subscription element to this because I run a subscription media business myself. So I'm I'm not going to let us nerd out about that because <laughs> no one else cares but you and I talking about a 20-person audience for that. Later. <laughs> but I, I'm familiar with that. But I'm very curious about the supply side of this because mm. Medium has been a place that has, it has become in many ways the de facto place for folks to go write something they need to put out to address a thing that's happened in their business or career or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when I'm thinking about the people that you're describing It doesn't sound like you want, you're expecting to have a lot of, you know, like professional journalists come on board and like replace their day job because it's subscription. You're clearly shooting for quality. So people need to have sufficient writing chops to do well. So who is like the perfect person in the middle of of your target market on the supply side of actually doing the writing itself? Probably a lot of your listeners, right? You're talking to a professional audience that has something to say because they have a profession. Their profession Mm -hmm. is not building a mailing list for their writing, right? So, I mean, you know, aside, right? Yeah. That's a great example for us, that somehow writing for you, your audience, is portfolio building. Or it's just like the standard impulse on the internet is, I know something and I want to share it, right? Like there used to be this real positivity to the internet that was like kind of the headline, which is, I want to be helpful, right? So that's the right in the crosshairs of, someone that we would be looking for. We need, obviously, we need a lot of them because how often do you have something like that that's worth sharing? Maybe you write like four to 10 times a a year. Sure. And that's fine for us, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, there's an economic component to this because Medium, even though I'm not going to go through the company's history because one, we've covered it ad nauseum on TechCrunch over the years. And two, I'm more interested in the current era than the past. But through some different strategies over the years. The company has grown a very large subscriber base, and I don't think everyone knows how big it is, but I do know that back in March of 21, you guys said you had around 725,000 paid subscribers. And then in your State of the Union, you mentioned that you had seen some some churn, but it kind of brought the ship back and we're seeing, honestly, pretty rapid growth at the time. So I'm curious, how big is the subscriber base of Medium that provides this economic engine today? Are you uh, fishing for transparency and numbers from me, a CEO? Uh, that was about that was about <laughs> as polite as I can say. Tell me the damn number, Tony. Come on. <laughs> stamping my foot. 
Yeah, I think the numbers help tell the story. We announced 720,000 subscribers back when you said it went up a little bit further. Our, our high point was 760,000 subscribers. Mm-hmm. But when I took over, we had been lost. We had been getting really good at driving attention, actually. Our recommendation algorithm had gotten better and better. But the more that we got things in front of people that they would click and read, the more that they unsubscribed which is counterintuitive to all of us, but which now we explain as what people are willing to read is very different than what people are happy to have read. Ah, That's just very different. And this is actually, in a way, we're grateful because this is why we wanted to be a subscription business in the first place is we wanted our incentives to be aligned with the readers. So it took all year, basically, to redo our incentives, redo our recommendation algorithm, because it can't just be around attention. They're like We put subject matter experts as a signal inside of the recommendations. And as a result, the quality of the substance went way up. Even though sometimes we'd make a change and the click-through rate would go down. It's still, we knew as someone who would know, like, you know, I know reading Mark Sluster about venture capital is different than reading someone who's just sounding off about venture capital but has never raised money, let alone, hey. you know, is a VC, right? Well, you're close enough to it, but there's plenty <laughs> of people that are willing to write that have no, yeah. just no experience, right? And so when we did that, everything changed. The churn rate got better. The growth got better. And so I think it's August 23rd. So when I took over, I don't want to gloss over the numbers. I almost did. And it would have been completely accidental. I was going to I was going to yeah. bring you back and be like, the CEO who promised transparency has pulled <laughs> off the greatest CEO trick in the book. <laughs> Confuse them with personal Wait. anecdotes. Keep going. When I took over, we were at uh, 682,000 subscribers. So we had dropped quite a bit. And in fact, that drop had been accelerating as we were getting closer to me taking over. So actually, maybe it wasn't the most compelling looking job in the world. But I was close enough to medium that I just felt... Mm-hmm. The case I made to the board and the investors was we can write the ship and there's a reason for Medium to exist. And so August 23rd, we're back at our high point and we've had back to back like all time record growth months for us. I don't want to say what we have today just because we're coming up on a bigger milestone and I just save it for them. I mean, there's only two milestones that could be coming up. One would be 750,000 and one would be a million. I'll be curious to know which one it is. And uh, I presume you'll call me when it's time to share that. Yeah, we're coming up on a million and we want to announce that when it happens. Okay, excellent. No, I'm, I'm excited about that because to me, it sounds like Medium has found its source and it knows who it wants to get stuff from. It has an idea of who it wants to distribute it to and how. And at a million subscribers, when you get to that point at $5 a month, it's $60 million a year in top line. Of course, you have COGS. You share that with writers to some degree. But it looks like Medium is going to be big enough that it, you can't kill it. That's my perspective on, on that number. It feels like self-sustaining and like robust at that yeah. point. No, that's... Um We'll be profitable by May or earlier, and that doesn't rely on any new work on our part. Just the current traction puts us at that. So, I mean, that's huge. I think one of the things with the publishing platform and the thing that I've tried to get across to our writers is you can rely on us. And Medium has this history of pivoting, which is like somewhat deserved. But what better message can we put out to people that you can rely on us than, you know, we're profitable. We're a sustainable business now. I mean, a profitable private company is akin to a, a public company, profitable or not, because then you can expect that it's going to kind of keep going. Yeah. I want to talk about AI because your perspective on that's very interesting, but I'm going to squeeze in one more question here before we do that. Medium's been around for a long time. There are some newer entrants to the 
do writing on the internet and make some money from it category that I've had a lot of attention in the last couple of years. Your Substacks, your Beehives, RIP review. Never had a chance to start at Twitter, I guess. I was a review user. Um, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was cool to have it inside of Twitter and then it just, I don't know. So do you think these are competing products or do you think you have different enough inputs and audiences that really you're not kind of at each other's necks, if that makes sense? The world of online publishing is massive. Like I would put ConvertKit in there. I'd put Squarespace in there. Sure. I mean, it's just a massive, massive space. And the key thing for us is to be differentiated and good. And we're differentiated on business model, we're differentiated on focus, we're differentiated on how we handle recommendations. And it just, if the business continues to do well, we have now a lot of runway to keep doing that, to keep really pushing the envelope on how good can we be. And I think we're a lot better than when I took over a year ago, but I think also we have a, a lot of opportunity to be even better. Yeah. Yeah. I, the thing that really strikes me about the medium model in contrast to other things is you guys are effectively selling a bundle to a degree. Yeah. One subscription, lots of content. Everything else is more tailored around a individual publication as a standalone or individual writer. And so I think it's going to be cool to see, not taking aside here, how the different approaches to this do over time. But if you're trucking that close towards that major subscriber milestone, clearly there's quite a lot that's working. All right, we're going to take a quick break, everybody. And when we get back, we're going to talk about AI and how to keep your secret sauce safe. We are back with Tony and we are going to talk about AI because Medium stuck its oar into the lake of AI conversation by taking a stance. And I'm going to take a shot at summarizing this, Tony, but essentially you guys are going to block crawling. And the way that I can kind of think about it is draw a moat around the words on your site and keep them to yourself. Is that a fair summary? It's sort of the opposite of what we normally do. I mean, our job is not to keep the words to ourselves. Our job is like, you put the words on Medium and we get them out there. Just a really weird situation with AI where there's no exchange of value. And I just like, I've so rarely seen this on the internet, right? Like they're building a business on not my words, but on the words of the authors on Medium and nothing comes back. And... I suspected that if this was explained bluntly to our authors, that they would not be happy. And I was right. As we talked back channel with authors and then more recently publicly, it just became an issue of basic fairness. First of all, there's no consent. There's no credit. There's no compensation. Nothing is coming back to the authors. And so the question then is, why would we bother participating in this ecosystem? We don't get anything back. And then it's actually much worse because the number one thing that I hear from our authors, our editors, our curators, our readers is that they're seeing like just spam essentially that's obviously AI generated. And so like we can see AI generate cool stuff sometimes, but on balance, we're facing this flood of spam Medium is pretty good at hiding that from the readers, but it's harder for us to hide that from the publication editors in particular because people are now submitting junk to them. We've actually seen this as well in certain like small science fiction writing competitions that have had to halt entire categories of competitions because they can't deal with the massive influx of AI spam, which it just it's a tragedy of the commons to some degree is how I feel about it. Like, it just makes me kind of sad. So I'm, I'm curious, though, about detecting AI. We'd hear a lot about this in educational context and can teachers tell when students are using AI? You guys say that you ha can just tell, just kind of like a human can discern. So I'm curious about how confident you are in highlighting, segregating, kind of pushing away AI-generated chaff from the rest of the stuff on Medium. Yeah, so 
Our trust and safety team tests AI detection tools every couple of weeks. Like what's new, what's been updated, and none of them are effective enough to be used in production. But because a lot of what gets recommended on Medium gets read by a human first, Mm. we get kind of the human take, which is, you know, the question of detecting AI is like, well, we don't have to be 100% confident in AI because AI-like is enough to know, well, we don't want this, right? Right, right? And so they just spot it instantly. It's bland, it's overconfident, it's got like a type of factual error that a human wouldn't make because, you know, a lot of t- the humans reading it are also kind of experts in that topic area. And so it's off. It just, it's off in all of these obvious ways. And I think within a couple of sentences, usually people know what's going on. You know, like the other thing too is AI embellishes with like extra stuff you don't need to know. It's not terse. It's anti-laconic. It's long-winded. It's literally a wind bag attached to a computer. And I say that (laughs) as someone who has a lot of fun with ChatGPT, and I'm a big fan of these AI things. On the value exchange thing, clearly with the number of LLMs that are out there in the modern Mm -hmm. kind of generative AI world, the cat has left the bag to some degree. But do you think that major model companies, your open AIs, et cetera, have um, a moral imperative to flip the value exchange here a little bit and start to remunerate people whose words they used? Because I'm kind of like cynical about this. And so I'm not Mm -hmm. like shocked that I guarantee you some of my words are in some of these models somewhere because I've written more than I want to admit on the internet. But I'm kind of just used to getting screwed online and people taking my data and my privacy and my stuff. So I'm almost like not shocked and not mad, but I'm curious if I'm too inured to things not being fair. Yeah. Why do we accept how far the internet has fallen? Like I just, the thing I tell our team and our authors is, hey, we don't have to just accept this. So yeah, I think there is a moral imperative. I think this is the perfect podcast to discuss. Is there a practical imperative? Because I think it's really obvious that these AI companies are you know, running the blitzscaling playbook, right? Oh, absolutely. So maybe it's just not going to matter to them. But we had an offer on the table for, it was like $1 million a year for access to Medium's content. And we were going to pass this money over to our authors. And I ran it by our authors and they're like, no. Like, strong no. I thought it might be a maybe or let's negotiate for something better. But it was a strong no. And I think that that says that where real people are on AI is very different than the media hype cycle on AI. That if AI wants to build real trust with real people, the AI companies, they're going to have to work a lot harder. I don't think they do, Tony. Yeah. Because I don't think they're selling to us, I think they're selling to B2B enterprise software companies, essentially. Right. Yeah. So that's the practical answer. Why bother? Well, why bother to participate? I hear you. But on the other hand, like, why do we accept things the way that they are? That really chafes because mm-hmm. you're right. And when we're thinking about just, I mean, picking on OpenAI because they're the best known, there are other companies that have their hands in the cookie jar. I'm not trying to single them out. But they're partially owned by Microsoft, which is worth, last time I checked, several trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. And uh, OpenAI is, you know, leaking to the media about how they're, you know, getting close to like, um, I forget, it was like 100, a billion dollar runway, 100 million dollar runway? 100 billion, yeah. Oh, yeah, the runway, right. But yeah, the valuation, yeah. they're selling on the secondary market for 100 billion dollars now? Yeah. Great. So it, clearly, Tony, there's no money at either <laughs> of those companies to fairly pay for what they took to teach them. I don't expect to check because practically, how can they say, oh, Alex, we took 84,000 of your words that you published over the years and here's a check for $8 or whatever. Yeah. But it just... The sheer, trying to find a non-profane word here, chutzpah, there you go. Yeah, chutzpah. Of this, it just kind of boggles my mind. Like, 
did they expect that no one would ask where the words came from that they used to form these digital brains? Because humans made it, and it just feels strange. Medium's not unique in opting out. We're sort of maybe unique in engaging our community in it. But, you know, the number of media properties that have opted out, the number of lawsuits that are going on right now, yeah, it's a real thing. The logic that I don't understand is, if AI is real, which like like it really is going to matter in the industry, yeah, then it's going to be a battle for quality, right? I mean, that logic seems logical to me. And so if it's a battle for quality, they're going to need to compete for access to the best training data. So if the best training data starts opting out of individual companies, right? Mm-hmm. Then what's going to happen? And so I'm actually a little bit worried about the status quo because I would like to see an up-and-comer succeed But in this case, OpenAI is essentially the up-and-comer, even though they're (laughs) Microsoft-affiliated. But the way it's working right now is Google has the advantage because we don't want to lose search engine traffic. They combine BARD and search engine. Even if search engine traffic goes down, what are we going to do? Like, can I Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Back up. So if you opt out of BARD, you opt out of all of robots.txt from Google? Not right now, but I'm very worried that that's the direction we're going to go. And so... yeah. Google has such an advantage because they actually have something to give, right? And they can give traffic. And they've already seen that we accept traffic as a exchange of value, right? Yeah. So OpenAI can't offer that. Uh, so they could offer money instead. But it just seems like a weird battle where if, if people start opting out of OpenAI and opting into Google, then we're choosing winners, which I don't want to be in that position anyways. And this is... This is actually the heart of the reason why it's hard to get a coalition of platforms together, because now it's like antitrust kind of territory. Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> the media monopoly. Watch out. The media is yeah. coming for you with its with its layoffs and failing business models. <laughs> yeah. We're clearly too profitable, Tony. Yeah, that's right. As a side of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So search is something that I think a lot about for two reasons. One is I write on the internet, search matters. And two, startups depend a lot on search because search yeah. is how they're often discovered. I mean, startups will will have a blog, I mean, and hope to get found for certain queries and drive awareness. And it seems that as we move towards what Google has so poetically named, the search generative experience, clearly a brand name for the H's, that there's going to be less room for individual bits of writing from a startup, from a person, from anyone to kind of like make it into the search world. And so I wonder if that lever you're describing of Google and search traffic is going to essentially be deprecated by their own work to build a new search engine model. Like, I feel like the era of blue links is is really dead. Yeah, maybe. I'm hopeful it's not dead. I'll just tell you it's in our budget to expect a 30% drop in SEO. But I don't have any hard data on that. I might be way overestimating. I might be way underestimating. Our SEO traffic is actually up right now. So I don't know. But I definitely, like, it's, I'm worried enough about it that it's in our budgets. And that's why, like, the whole push of Medium to keep growing its subscription business makes so much sense to me. Because, you know, Google giveth and Google taketh away. Right. And if you're reliant on a platform, you're always just living on borrowed time. And so right. to me, like, the focus on SEO is like an intelligent way for publications to try to defend legacy cash flows. But I don't see it as a way forward. I I don't think anyone's going to build the next great BuzzFeed in this era. I don't think that's, I mean, social media has gotten more fragmented, more private. Search is worse and increasingly self-contained. So it, it almost feels like you have to have either a massive brand to drive people to your site directly, other 
distribution methods like your tech memes and so forth in my world, or you have to have a subscriber base. And so I almost mourn the loss of what we never had, I guess, in, in when it comes to functional online economics. But at least at least subscriptions are doing well enough that you and I have jobs. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, it's better than that. You know, I think we often discount word of mouth. There's uh, my boss, the founder of Medium, I was telling him about all these growth uh, strategies at one point, different company. I've known him for a while. And it, he goes, pull out your phone. And he goes, tell me what growth strategy like led you to download each app on your phone. And he goes, I bet you there's actually a person behind each one of them. Oh. And I think we really forget that when you actually do a great job, you tell your friends, you tell your family. You know, in some ways, maybe it's healthier if we're less reliant on growth hacking and taking advantage of the platform of the moment and get back to nuts and bolts, you know, deliver value and and sell that way. Yeah. So to summarize a little bit, it sounds like the medium model has refound its legs and is growing its subscriber base. Yeah. And growing quickly, too. You're putting the growth of TechCrunch Plus to shame, which makes <laughs> me feel, for that. feel poor at my job. I'll have to, I'll have to work harder. But I, I just want to close with this. You know, AI aside and, you know, the history of medium aside, how optimistic are you about the future of online writing economics for most folks in the next five years? I am super optimistic because I think a lot of the unhealthy stuff is starting to fall away. You know, these things come in fads, right? And as it falls away and as people realize, oh, the attention economy was a dead end. The attention economy is driven by ads. So let's explore other models. You know, we're not in the beginning of the Internet. It was like ads or free, you know, and free had its own limits. Ads had the wrong incentives. And it's like, what if everything you kind of hate about the modern Internet could be solved for five dollars a month? Is that good enough for you? For a lot of people, the answer is yes. So. Yeah, no, I have a post somewhere in my mind that I haven't gotten out yet. Back to your point about knowing what you want to say about how anything that depends on advertising for its long-term growth will inevitably eat all the consumer surplus it once had and eventually turn into a vampire. And yeah, that's why, I mean, honestly, I do my job at TC because it's what I got rehired to work on, but also it's because I, I think it's the best way to ensure that TechCrunch remains the weird place that it is and doesn't have mm -hmm. to become a Diet Coke mashable. You know, of yeah, the old yeah. of the old day of that site. No yeah. diss to the current people that work there. So, yeah, you and I are only betting our, our careers on being right. So <laughs> we'll have to see how it goes. A better way to do it. And how soon are you going to come back on and talk about hitting that 1 million subscriber metric? Like, is that like next year? Is that like two years from now? Is that like December? We're putting a pool together in the company right now. And if you would like to participate on background, I'll invite you in. Yeah, I'm in. Uh, clearly, right. it's going to be uh, January 13th, 2024. So. You're not too far off. That's a reasonable bet. Thank you. All right, Tony, thanks for coming on the show. We will talk to you more about this down the road because when it comes to AI and writing and uh, how to do value on the internet, I am obsessed. But thank you very much. And where can folks find you online? Oh, come on. You find me on Medium. I'm Coach Tony on Medium. And that's my social media platform of choice. I was going to say, I'm not going to ask for your X handle here because I don't think that would be appropriate. All right. Thank you, everybody. Equity is back on Friday morning. We'll see you then. Until then, stay cool. Equity is hosted by myself, editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch senior reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.